0: Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all about farms transforming with a zoo edge, and I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to than Chris. Welcome Chris Wilkinson to the show. Hi James, thanks for having me on. No, great to have you on. Now if you want to talk to everyone and let everyone know exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Sure, so
1: my name is Chris Wilkinson, I'm the curator here at Noah's Ark Zoo Farm, which is just outside Bristol.
0: Yeah, amazing, and obviously... Quite a, a position to be in um, with a lot of responsibility. We don't simply roll into those positions. Everyone's got those stories, those journey, those kind of, I guess, those true life moments to get into where they are today. Do you have them, Chris? I'm sure you do. Um, let us know exactly what journey you've been on and and how it all began to where you are today.
1: Yeah, sure. So my journey started as a boy, really. I think I was about 12 or 13 and some sort of fa- family friends came to my parents who were farmers, and they said, we're opening our farm up as a little farm centre, would you your family mind coming up and helping us? We don't have anyone to help us. So we did. We came up as a family, my sisters and my mum and dad. And my dad was driving the tractor. My mum was, I don't know, working in the ticket office a bit as well and we were helping guests around the farm. And me and my sisters started handing out rabbits to kids that came in. And it was very uh, primitive in those days. I mean, I think only one little room on the farm, was, which is now our reptile house, had the rabbits in. The rest of the, the farm was just open fields every Saturday we would come up and do that and then sort of next year or so I suppose my sister started coming a bit less but I would come up every Saturday religiously and I didn't really know it at the time but loved being outside that was that was a real motivator for me I think when you're a kid you just do what you do and you don't really realize why you like it and then a few more volunteers started to come to the zoo but no it wasn't a zoo then a farm park um, and then I started organizing them a little bit and um, sort of sorting out the different duties that we would do and we were all You know, volunteer wise, we were all kids, like no no question about it. We were I I was like thirteen at that point. And and then year on year the the farm park just carried on getting bigger and I didn't leave and school holidays and and weekends I was there it was a bit unusual that we were always shut on a Sunday but obviously someone had to come and feed the animals so I was here on a Sunday as well quite often and then they, they were employing one person to manage the animals at that point and one grounds builder type person to help develop the site so I would work with the animal person on the weekends when I was in or or I would cover their days off at that point and was doing almost, you know, it wasn't many animals to look after. And the way we were doing it was very simple just sort of bucket of food, bit of hay, and make sure the water trough had water in it. And that was it. Over the next, well, I suppose it's nearly 25 years that's that's just got bigger and bigger um got to a point where I had to make some choices at school what do I want to do I kind of knew that I was pretty engaged in this farm park thing that was going on and I had another sort of line of interest in life I think I was quite into photography and I did my work experience at school in one week on a beef farm and one week on a in a photography thing and I loved the photography but I hated being stuck inside in the studio so that was a kind of beginning of an eye-opener for me and The beef farm was fun. I wanted to do it at at Noah's Ark, but they said, nah, you kind of know what you're doing here. Go and learn something else, which at the time was like, but um, absolutely um, wisdom that I I share with others now. Then I was making choices at the end of school thinking, well, do I want to do a bit of farming or do I want to do this kind of farm park beginning to look a little bit like on the edge of a small zoo? Is a zoo thing something I want to do? And Funnily enough, I decided that there was more of a future in zookeeping than there was in farming because I didn't inherit a farm. And as far as I could tell, that was the only way to really get into farming at that point. So very motivated by using my using my hands in my work, practical work, being out in the countryside. So I went and did animal care and animal management at college after school. I found academic study quite hard my whole life. and quite dyslexic. So at the point of leaving college, I was kind of sick of animals. I had become associated with bookworms and really energy sapping stuff for me rather than the enjoyment that it that it should have been so I went off for a few months and did some work with street children in Africa and while I was there they wrote to me Noah's Ark wrote to me and said the lady who has been looking after the animals wants to move on and we'd like you to come and work for us oh well, in fact I think to start with I said no because I'd seen the stresses that she'd had and I was like I don't really want that <laughs> But so I said, I don't really want that, but um, and I'm enjoying this sort of Africa mission type stuff, so I, I think I'll carry on doing that probably. But maybe I'll come for a little bit if you agree to employ somebody else as well, so that it's not all on one pair of shoulders or two. I think at that point, they wrote back and said, Yeah, well, that's that's fine, we'll we'll do that. We don't really want anyone else to do this job, we want you to do it. We've seen that potential, I suppose, from all those years volunteering, and you know the place, you know us, and it fits, so we would like you to. To do it so i came back as a animal keeper after that and that was in 2004 and then within a few months was head keeper having you know essentially fresh out of college but also i don't know five or six years under my belt from well, maybe not quite that much, voluntary. So team of three of us just about to bring in rhinos as the first proper zoo animal. Then from then, we call those years the Wild West because we were, I, like, I quite like the um, philosophy that you hear from Facebook of move fast and break things. I think that was the philosophy back then, like we're just going to make progress and we're going to steep learning curve and just make, you know, work it out as we go along. And that was the attitude of the founder and we were Doing fairly well at it, but not perfect compared to. And it Wouldn't be how we would do it now, but and then after a few years of being head keeper, they there was a course running through Spa shop which they don't run anymore, I don't think. But it was a foundation degree in zoo management, that was a two-year course that was kind of half mostly done at home, but you had to go on. A couple of block weeks to spa so i did that for the for the two years and that was quite good for me because i was able to apply knowledge i'd learned at work but by that time i was a bit more mature and i could handle that level of academic study and i I think straight off the back of being 18 or whatever i wouldn't have been able to do that the zoo paid for it as well which was also good and then from then the team just started growing the animals we were bringing in were was growing, um, you know, the collection was getting bigger and bigger. At some point I made the shift and I think it was around the time that we went into Bayaz that the role had kind of changed from just being out on the ground as a sort of head keeper to more of a bit more strategic and a bit more facilitating operations which is kind of when I moved into a, what we call a curator role but I think the thing with these job titles is they only mean what you want them to mean you know, a curator in one place does a different to a curator in another place and how senior they are in the organization is up to the organization and um, on the continent I think it, it looks a lot more like that's a very academic route if you're a curator and if you want to be a practical route that's you know, it's a parallel journey, but they're not really interlinked. And that's certainly how it seemed in Frankfurt when we were there. So yeah, that's that's kind of the journey to where, where we are. Obviously, we brought in a lot of um, iconic species and, and somewhat controversial species, um, elephants being the, probably the most notable, you know, one of the most modern cutting edge sort of houses, certainly when we built it. Thankfully, people have uh, come and developed and taken what we've, what we've done and, and tried to better it as well. You know, we're breaking new ground as part of a collective in the industry. So we've done a lot of things. I think one of the things about working in one place for a long time is you have to own your development. I mean, I'm probably mentioned this a few times. I quite like little strap lines and and catchphrases. And I think one of the ones that I've taken on board is try not to be the smartest man in the room because that's not a position that you can grow in. Um, So put yourselves in rooms where you can learn from others. And I think when you stay somewhere long enough, you have to really own that.
0: Yeah, well, what a journey let's so say you've uh, definitely been through a fair few things and i guess you've touched on it already you've just answered it so you've jumped the gun uh, you may repeat yourself but we'll see if you have anything else to add to the party do, do you have any advice looking back at that journey looking back at those stories for even your younger self but if not for someone listening in to from your experiences about the industry whatever you've got to give any little gems
1: for um i think for trying to get into the industry the way i did it's something i look at when people come today, is how valuable volunteering is. And it's difficult sometimes because by very nature, there's no pay attached to that. So some people find that harder. But even if it's just you know, one of your days off, I think volunteering is like a constant job at, um, interview. You can write whatever you want on your paper. I might not even read it. If I know you, you cannot bluff me because I know you. I know what you're going to bring to this organisation. I know how difficult or easy you're going to be. with. And, and to be honest, those are the people that we really want, that we know that are going to absolutely... You know be a credit and i think that volunteering and being the person that the team look forward to being in don't just be average shine put everything you've got into it don't be over the top and annoying but just be the one that doesn't have to be told twice to sweep the floor doesn't have to be told to go back over things in my mind there's no difference I'm happy to train a volunteer to any point at which they can cope with. I don't believe that the fact that someone's putting money in your pocket or not changes how competent you are as a person. It's the person on their journey. And, you know, I don't mind people having keys to certain animals if they're trained or driving certain machinery. As long as they're insured and everything to, you know, we'd, we'll train them to that point. And as a volunteer, you can progress to a point where the team really value you. And at that point, you're so employable. You know, I, I, I used to put volunteers into brackets. There's volunteers that come and you really help them. And there's volunteers that come and really help you they get that from it you know you want to be in that second bracket and and you want to be the top of the class in that bracket and you know I look around my team and, and my section leaders and most of them not all of them but most of them started as volunteers and you know some of them have gone and done something else somewhere else which has been valuable some of them have just played the long game and stayed um, a bit like I did I suppose but that would be advice I would give to people and on a CV that is definitely what we're looking for what have you done what can you prove that you can do I know I, know, I mean we might come to this later but over academic study, I'd take that every day. If you want to take it down a more scientific route, maybe that's more relevant. For me, when I see a degree, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, okay. I mean, it shows me that you can think. It shows me that you know how to take that process and own it and put it on paper. But let's understand the job you're doing, you know, as a trainee you know, I just want you to be reliable. I want you to be mixing in the team in a really positive way. I want you to be able to clean. I want you to be observant. I, you know, those skills you're not learning at university. I mean, I, we used to say, we're probably not this harsh anymore, but you're like, well, it'll take me about a year to get you to forget everything that you thought you knew. And most people don't use the information they learn, I don't think. It's, it's different. So I am skewed by my own experience of education Um, I'm not I'm not blind to that but I'd say just just really evaluate what you where you want to get to and yeah I'd say that that leads to higher education less often than people think in my opinion you know a fair amount to learn from as well. I think the other thing about Keeper Development is providing that framework into that they can really thrive in I think I have these little like phrases I say to myself and I think overall one of the ones I have is like hosting happiness that's one of the things that, that really makes me smile about what we do here and and, and the, the zoo in general and then when i think about the keepers and what i'm trying to do for them i think that what i say to myself is facilitating greatness like you want to i want to provide that framework where they can be the best that they can that 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 they can um achieve all that they all they can
0: some really really great advice i i can happily say i started off on a voluntary role with regards to our and stuff uh, once again Play a major part in most people's careers, and it's a, a very valuable resource. So, yeah, some some great work, great words. Now, the next one I've got for you then is master planning, creating a master plan, a collection plan. It's it's essential for any collection, whether you be a wildlife park, a zoo, a safari park, a farm, whatever you want to label yourself as. It is essential. Now, with that comes the questions of what goes into it, what's considered, what are your crowd pleasers, what's your cons- conservation, and I guess from your point of view, evolving from that farm up to that zoo, that wildlife park, what, what goes into it? I, I guess, can you break it down for us? Yeah, I think
1: it's an interesting one. I think it depends on on what your goals are and where you are in your journey. Um, I mean, we're at an interesting point now where Noah's Ark turned into a charity and is a completely different entity than it was at the beginning of the year. So we're freshly thinking about strategy and goals and therefore we'll build the collection plan around that. But I think for Noah's Ark and... To this point, it's been a case of pushing quite hard at the crowd-pleasery type avenue in order to get the organization to a critical mass where it draws enough people in that it is sustainable. So I think what you can do, what you would choose to do, uh, is probably depends on where you are in, in your journey for, for your collection. And I do think that they evolve well, year on year, but um, f- from where you are in in, in your development, we, we really want our zoo to be an exceptionally enjoyable place to be in. So we are putting and going to be putting more emphasis than some people would on dynamic animals that people <laughs> want to see because one of our goals that will be at the forefront i think when we've settled on what our strategic goals are going to be is going to be we want to create an environment where people fall in love with as much of nature as possible i think the more animals that you've got in in the mix that i mean you you can find animals that tick more than one box don't get me wrong but we want to see the animals that are uh, Awake and moving around you know we want people to stop and engage with the animals in the collection and i don't think that really detracts from the work that we will want to do with conservation and those goals as well i think the skill of it will be marrying as many of them up together as we can and going through that journey which is quite exciting with all of with 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 so many parts of the business once you've got your direction set it's, it's a really fun process in some ways now that we're in because we are creating something that people really believe in that they want to get behind and support that they love coming to both as a visitor and as staff and there's meaning behind it and whether that's from you know from the cafe from the gift shop from the experiences to the animal collection all of those feeding and serving that higher goal that everyone's bought into and agreed that's really powerful when when so your collection plan your conservation plan your business plan your site plan when all of that feeds a goal that everyone's really driven by that's a recipe for something really powerful and I think that we become you know, community assets in a way that we haven't really seen before. We've, you know, we're reaching areas of, of our population and demographic that and don't engage with wildlife and zoos. We're connecting people with their food routes. We're managing ecosystems within farmland with with animals. We're, we're reaching across the globe and doing conservation work in, in Peru. And, you know, we've got various breeding programs going on and, and a colourful, vibrant collection. Like, we're very proud of our site and our collection and we will continue to yeah, champion that and make that you know as enjoyable day out as possible like we're, we're not shy and backward about saying that we want people to enjoy the zoo <laughs> and we want them to have the most fun here have, make memories you know around every corner with their families that, that last a lifetime and most of us have been inspired by visiting a zoo at one point and we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and lose focus on the fact that people want to have a good day out and we want people to have a good day out and we want here to be where they fall in love with with nature and we won't do that by having enclosures for boring brown animals
0: unfortunately No it's some really really exciting stuff and I think it's it's nice to hear. Really, really nice to hear, and we can see that from the outside that you're growing, becoming a a real big player in this industry, which is, is nice to see. And uh, with that, obviously, it doesn't happen without the people behind it. You know that goes for all all businesses. You know, it's the people who make it, and our zoos, our wildlife parks, our farm parks, and so on. They are no different. They need those those bodies, those those passionate individuals behind it, spearheading the focus. So, with regards to yourself do you have any key characteristics that you're looking for from your keepers um and i guess from that is do you see any additional skills needed which combine that that farm element with that zookeeper element and enhance the the platform further
1: it is interesting when you think about people that have come from a farm background um potentially coming into because we have quite a big farm section but they just to put that in context so we are 100 acres of zoo and 100 acres of farmland outside the zoo but the farmland outside the zoo is run separately by a farm partnership and that's mainly arable crops so there's farm section is an animal team within so we have six animal teams within the animal department and managed exactly the same as all the others it's just they don't look after zebras they look after suffolk punches like that group of that that team will draw more than others from a pool of people that have worked in farm parks for a pool of people that have worked in in traditional farms and it's it's interesting when you see that because you've got different Approaches and different skill sets that would probably be the industry norm for these different avenues of, of coming into the industry. So, when we see an application from somebody that's just worked on a farm, it will look very different to an application that somebody that's used to applying for zoo jobs. So, you have to have an open mind and, and be able to, to sort of see. And we've had that before when people have tried to explain their experience, but they've only worked in rescue centers. It's like, I'm struggling to quantify your experience based on the things I'm used to seeing. So, I guess you have to have maybe a little bit. Of, of knowledge of the way that they would be working and, and how that sort of relates to what you want. I mean, it's interesting that farmers are often quite isolated. So they're bringing them into a forum, which is, ent- you know, hugely public focused and, you know, that you're not working with three people, you're working with 100 people, and then you're invited 200,000 people in to visit, you know, it's, it's a very different dynamic than I'm on the countryside on my own all the time. Some of the stockmanship in some of the farmers' out there is incredible and you know driving through a field on a quad bike and going that sheep's lame she's got a bad udder leaves a gap between a lot of the stockmanship i can see in the zookeepers and we mustn't look down our noses at them because it looks different like you need to recognize what you're looking at there is a lot that we can learn from good stockmen in, in the farming industry and I mean, also the technology that some people are reinventing the wheel within the animal industry that they don't need to because it's been invented for horses and cows already. <laughs> Stevie and I were um, often talk about things like this, but you know, there was one place that were very excited by this new piece of technology that they discovered. It's like it's a cattle crush. Had that for twenty years. Yeah, it's an interesting question, but I think recognizing what you're seeing and. You know, there's a lot of comparable and relevant skills out there that I suppose also the efficiency of, of the work. Like if you're working on your own with a hundred cows, I went on a conservation grazing course recently and we were driving around Chatsworth House and and the guy that manages the farm there said, Oh, we have one member of staff to roughly two thousand sheep. Put that in a zoo context. He's just bonkers. So the efficiencies and and, and the mechanization of, of of the way they work, there's quite potentially you know, a fair amount to learn from as well. Yeah,
0: no, some some great stuff. And that is going to lead us perfectly into the next segment of this podcast episode. It's the big questions. It's a part of this podcast episode where we tackle some of the bigger questions in the industry and trying to get to the bottom of these answers. So we'll we'll give it a crack. And as I say, that leads us perfectly to the number one. And I think you're just the man to answer for this. And that is how would you define a modern day farm
1: yes that's an interesting question I think one of the things we have to remember when we think about farms is they and and farm parks and they are essentially family businesses usually they don't have the same DNA as, as zoos do usually it's quite hard to sometimes even use the same language when describing them and 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 also like you know they're, they're businesses they have to make profit uh, or at least cover their faces otherwise people don't get fed so farmers manage what 70 percent of the the natural world in in Great Britain so they are custodians of the countryside and the future I hope is that they are the conservationists of of our landscape. I'm really passionate about the concept of conservation grazing, using native animals to restore habitats, absolutely loads of benefits but things have to pay as well so it's a difficult balance and I hope the government supports the farmers in that. I, I believe strongly that we should be able to feed ourselves at least mostly. I don't think it's a very supported industry. I've spoken to several farmers that think the government wish we weren't farming at all, which would be a very, very vulnerable state for the country, I think. Uh, But they all care about you know you speak blank you know you can't really blanket everyone but everyone i speak to in the forums that i am involved in are passionate about the countryside of wildlife but also you know want to produce food for the nation and need to make you know a viable business out of it so it's a complicated balance but i think that they that that some of the things that are possible within farming is 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 really going to benefit our environment but it does take a cultural shift from the consumers that food isn't always cheap, that we shouldn't eat meat every day. You know, I think we've been lied to that being, you know, becoming vegetarian or vegan is good for the planet. I, I think, I think, Sadly, I think that's a misguided notion completely. You know, we eat meat-free at least twice a week. I think we need to eat better and less often, uh, meat-wise, and meat production can be extremely beneficial for the environment. So it's a really complicated question. (laughs) But uh, I think at at its essence, the future should enhance our biodiversity, should be able to feed the nation, and um, maybe we need to pay a little bit more for our food to get there and and just be more specific, like why, why should we eat? meat every day you know the, the cost of that is is what the rainforest you, you, you're producing and importing cheap meat you know let's knock that on the head and promote British stuff that's reared in a you know the highest welfare in the world you know that, that will benefit our our ecosystems
0: yeah very very well put and a great way to kick off these questions now number two I think combines with number three so I'm going to tell you both of them at one go but if you want to separate them I totally understand now I guess the question to kick off is what makes a farm a good place to work within the zoo industry and then combining into that why should someone consider applying for a farm within the zoo industry obviously coming out of university coming out of college or simply moving from zoo to zoo the classics come out your London zoos your Chester zoos your Edinburgh's your Dublin's all those historical zoos but there is so much more to the world now. I'm not gonna talk anymore. Over to you, Chris. I don't think
1: that there's much difference. As we said before, I haven't worked in a in another institution full time. So you're looking after the same animals but maybe there's more space. I know if you've got one of the things that farms often do have is a lot of space, which I think is part of the future of, of lots of animal keeping is giving more space to decide whether it's a good fit or not. You should look at the values behind the place and really learn how to sniff that out. Because if it's not evident, because some Farm parks are very mission driven, you know, interested in the environment and conservation in people. And some are the family businesses and that's their driver. And and I'm not throwing any shade at them, you know, that's absolutely fine. But depending on what motivates you and what you you know what sort of organization you work for i think don't make a sweeping statement that all farm park zoos are the same and, and don't assume that you're not going to get out of them everything that you could get out of working in a city zoo i think you'd have to approach everybody as an individual and and look into yeah what you want to get out of your your role or your institution and you know ask people that work there what's it like you know what's the team culture like what do they care about do you have enough money for a new brush like what you know find out what's like working there and make those make those calls that's cool
0: that's cool i mean great great answer and obviously i guess looking at the whole industry here in the uk we're renowned throughout europe of having some of the well, the highest quantity of zoos wildlife parks safari parks in such a small amount of space compared to europe or, or even the world with regards to you know more zoos but but these farms transitioning into the industry do you see it as an advantage? Are are we progressing by having more or are we just simply diluting ourselves?
1: Yeah, interesting question. So I think I've had a few farm parks because we kind of sit in both worlds a little bit. A few farm parks come to me and talk about getting a zoo license and and my usual first question is why? Why do you want to do that? Like don't essentially unless you're absolutely sold on it because there's the the difference in the governance the legislation and the expectation on you when you become a zoo is huge compared to what you need to adhere to to be a farm park i don't think that it's always very obvious the difference in the level in the two worlds from the outside i think just to bring a few meerkats and a you know people's pets or something that they're giving you like a barn owl or whatever to bring a few things like that in in my mind is a really big question of whether that's worth, you know, all the other expectations. You've suddenly got education goals to fill, you've got conservation roles to fill, you've got vet requirements that you didn't have before, you've got training, you've got CPD for your staff, you've a massive package of expectation that come, and, you know, legal requirements that comes with getting a zoo license that that the farm parks don't have. So I don't really say don't do it because I'm not saying you can't do it or you're not capable or anything like that. You know, there's some incredibly talented people have done this and that will do this but just really go into it with your eyes open is what is is essentially what i'm saying like don't think that it's tick box like it's going to cost you thousands and it will be a lot of work forever to do this and you know and i talked to one farm park and they surrendered their farm their, their their zoo license because it wasn't worth it for what but what those few extra things they had, you know, exactly like what Maxine was saying when you when you had her on, there's like, well, we've got a zoo license now, let's go for it. Let's let's bring in bears, you know, why not? And I think that's the that's the thing. Like if that's your driver and that's what you want to do, yeah, fantastic. But if it's just a small thing, then I personally I say just be a farm bike but be a really good one. People will still come, you know, believe in something and and channel it in just the same way you would as if you were a zoo, but do it with rare breed farm animals and then you know you've usually got all the play and all the other things in the part of the business as well but often those those businesses are kind of farm diversification type situations and and I think a zoo really needs to be a bit more mission driven than than just a diversification so it can't it's not that it can't be done but just yeah as i said let's just make everyone aware of all, all the facts on that really that's that's kind of my mantra to myself when i have those conversations um but with regards to having more zoos i don't think that's a weakness really i think the more animal establishments that are licensed and obligation to do things really well you know the better we're a nation of animal lovers there's enough people that are interested to go around and see more places and people will find their own niches as time goes on i'm sure but i, I mean we're only up the road from from bristol um and i don't think you know if if our area becomes known for having zoos in it then people that love zoos will come here and probably do a few as a part of a, a trip or something you know it's like having shoe shops all in one spot if you want shoes you go there and you you know you look at all the shoes so i don't think that it's a problem having lots of zoos and i think that the more sort of people that keep animals professionally are under the same legislation the better i think because standards will be kept I think that the corners of the industry that are not regulated properly I, I don't think like the I do a birthday party with my pets that I keep in my garage the rest of the time that sort of corner I'd like to see them almost included and in, so so we're all on not only an even playing field but but we're all going keeping the same standards
0: so the next question I've got for you Chris is obviously rare breeds you know they're they're everywhere in the UK we've got plenty of them um and I guess that you know the word farm in a zoo, is you go to the petting farm, you touch some animals, and that's about it. And I guess what the we've talked about this wave of farms coming into this industry and what they've got to bring. Rare breeds, and I, I'm definitely not the person to talk to about this. Chris, you're, you're the man rare breeds what what are we talking about why are farms a good thing to bring this into this industry and bring this different edge
1: yeah this is a particular interest to me i think as well so what what is a rare breed it's a it's a it's a native breed of farm animal that for one reason or another has and usually it's profitability um an emphasis changed within the farming industry a lot of it post-war emphasis on higher yield so some of our native breeds couldn't compete with the continentals who feed these animals with a bit of barley they'll grow you know twice as quick or something for for sort of commercial reasons the um some of the rare breeds became less desirable so that and that's really our you know the, the demise of some of these native breeds is, is where that sort of phrase came from and the rare breed survival trust sort of uh, was was founded to try and protect these breeds and, and maintain that genetic diversity so they're not lost and i think um, where i see a real or where i find myself in in a re- with a real interest in these animals is how that interacts with our our wildlife and our native ecosystems where they have grown and lived together for hundreds of years with these animals that are low impact low input and you know and 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 the hay meadows and they'll They'll live on much rougher grassland. You don't need to be cutting it all the time, keeping the, the freshest, greenest grass growing in order to get the highest yield. And so, yeah, I really love how our native animals can come back into the countryside and that can increase our biodiversity. So with these rare breeds, we've got these sort of conservation storylines going through. We've got the, the sort of history storyline going through. And we've also got breeding program and a protection sort of um narrative as well so I think that when we come to, to to looking at domestic animals in zoos we can find a real conservation angle on, on multiple levels when we bring in these farm animals these rare breed farm animals so we've got yeah we've got a real opportunity so when we look at when we wanted to give our farm section a bit of an overhaul and give it a more of a conservation focus in the same way that we do with lots of the other animal section all the other animal sections so bringing those rare breeds into the zoo just made real real sense really um so that's kind of how we've how we've ended up with our own rare breed section and we you know we found a kind of uh synergy there with with jimmy's farm and they're interested in rare breeds. so we've sort of teamed up a little bit and we, we're both rbst accredited i think they were the first we were the second with our farm sections and we're trying to champion that and, you know, it costs no more to keep a rare breed animal than it does a, um, a gen, you know, a coonie coony pig or something, but there's more of a story if you have a tamworth or a large black or something. So we can give that a bit more of a focus in, in our farm sections with these animals that tell our story, not just a, a generic pig story. Yeah,
0: totally. Totally. Now, at this point, I was about to lead on to the final segment, but I do have one bonus question for you. It's something we've, we've talked about before. We've alluded to it. And that is, it's kind of the point of these episodes is... I'm bringing up and I'm saying the word farm way too many times. I'm saying it way too many times but to really prove a point that you know the name zoo, the name farm, the name wildlife park, they all come with brands. They all come with a reputation which goes above that one collection for many many years. What is your viewpoint on on the name? You know, do we need to get rid of the names? Do we need to embrace the names, the word zoo, the word farm, the combinations of the two? What where where do you stand? Yeah, another good one.
1: Um I probably apply this sort of philosophy to this that I do with other things that we do within the zoo that if going to do it be very proud of it and if you're not proud of it why are you doing it and I think both the farm and the zoo I mean we have both in our name there was our zoo farm and it makes my email address incredibly long I mean not only does it make sense when you get here but both identities I suppose are something that I feel that we, we, we should be extremely proud of and promote I think if we can promote the education around sustainable farming around sort of food production and awareness of how how that is i mean having a restaurant on site and a farm section i think and a farm shop just it really means we've got all the pieces of the puzzle to really create a rounded educational offering for everyone that comes through that how their food choices affects the environment and the wildlife that we have in our country and you know we're still joining those dots up and it can be a little bit of a hot potato but it is something that i feel very strongly that we need to own and embrace when people come here they understand it makes sense like you can see that there's farming around and it's we are farm, but we are zoo and and again zoo is a collection of animals that people come to enjoy i don't think that's something that that we should shy away from i think that you know it's come up a few times in management meetings so should we think about something else and i feel very strongly that zoo as a as an identity we need to work through the fact that historically particularly that that didn't have great connotations but we just need to be very proud of the progress we've made and keep pushing forward and not allow that sort of negative around the word that could be could be drawn out not allow that to sit with us and you know I'm I'm quite one for if someone tries to label you something just don't accept that like I, I, I'm not accepting that for myself like I'm not putting animals in small cages so i'm not gonna identify with that like if you if that's your connotation that's your problem we are progressive and we you know and i think i want to own that and just do it justice really i think yeah have it own it and and redefine it
0: very well very well summed up and you've battled through you'd be happy to know you've battled through and conquered those big questions and we're now on the final element of this podcast episode this is the quick fire round As we've very much learned throughout these podcast episodes, they can either go as the questions say and they can fire through, but as we're more commonly seeing, they can erupt into conversation. So let's see how we get on, Chris, and give it a go. Now, number one, I think it's quite a simple one, but let's see how we go, and that is, what is your favourite animal?
1: I like the way Darren answered this one where he said every every new animal is my favourite animal because there's a bit of that for me as well. I have a particular soft spot for a Lana falcon that we have here because she was the first falcon I trained um, to fly to the lure, but generally i'm very very keen on cows cattle particularly native beef breeds i think they're amazing
0: some very good choices uh, very different as well uh between the two next one up then is it is an easy one so i apologize this is not a quick fire round question what is your top tip for mental health and well-being well like
1: most people have said a work-life balance i think is is, is massively key i quite often think of An analogy that I was told once, which is that we are, if you imagine we are like a bucket and and, and the things that come into your bucket fill it up and that's your, your sort of capacity. And we can't always control what comes into our bucket like that we just live in a world and I think I think the world we live in now we haven't fully adapted to with the with with the amount of information that we're fed through social media, through having our phone in our pocket, is just I just think it we live in a slightly overwhelmed and over drained state with the state of the world and, and all that negativity. So I think that we've got a lot of things that feed stresses into our bucket, but I kind of feel like we're living in an elevated state of capacity just by the amount of stuff that we're fed probably subconsciously but i don't want to get too deep into that but so certain things you can you can control what fills your bucket up but one of the things i was told recently is you find ways to punch holes in your bucket and let some of that water out so finding things that restore you um so whether that's hobbies walking in nature reading find those things that that allow you to just drain some of that capacity back into your bucket and i think that we as animal keepers and particularly those that are immersed in the day-to-day care, because of the caring nature of your role and, and and I think the fact that we live nowadays, particularly in a almost overwhelming emotional sort of society where, you know, the environment's in a terrible state, that there's wars all over the place, the amount of negativity and things to care about is overwhelming. So the fact that you've got animals that are sick, you know, we, we lose perspective because we're living at capacity the whole time. So uh, I think that having that balance and, and it's hard to say to people, hold it lightly because it's, an, it's a caring industry that you invest so emotionally in. Your animals are like your colleagues. So you need to be able to step away and just find something that isn't to do with work <laughs> that you can restore some capacity, I think, and get, get some proper break. I mean, I live at, I live on site. One of the things for me to compartmentalize my brain is whether I take my boots off or not. I pretty much only wear my boots at work. So when people see me out and about, I've usually got the most ridiculous, unpractical shoes on. Yeah, when I'm in work mode, I've got that. But I don't know, just for me mentally, you know, stupid, sloppy shoes on just means I'm not fixed for work. So I'm not, my brain isn't checking into that. Yeah, I guess over time, you find your strategy that, that works for you, um, or you don't, and you burn out, and that's the sad truth. Yeah,
0: some some great words there, and uh, very well answered. Now, number three is what is the best part of the industry? I
1: love building something that people care about. I think that's really fabulous so that's a real motivator for me to be making something that i care about that i can see other people care about that people come to have great days with their family so i love that side of of it
0: yeah no it does yeah spot on spot on now the the next one could take you absolutely anywhere in this world and that is what zoo globally would you like to visit and why
1: yeah i've heard you ask this a few times and i i'm not never i wasn't sure and still i'm not exactly what to say to that I mean I've seen some things from some of the American zoos that I would like to go and see um the Bronx Zoo um San Diego I saw some stuff on social media recently from Leipzig Zoo and I thought well, that looks that that looks worth seeing we're at the moment in the process of sort of looking at going out with it as a senior team and going to see some of the different zoos that we feel are really um pushing the envelope forward you know driving things in a new way yeah it's quite topical at the moment for us here but I don't have one exactly one I'd like to see there are little bits from lots of places I'd, I'd like to see so when we think about where we want to go and see and who's really um who's really driving things forward and, and creating new things it was bringing back memories of something that we used to think of which was um well I used to say that the, there was this Chester Zoo effect on my keepers that if we couldn't emulate what they had done because they were they were pushing you know they and they do do great great things they would constantly compare themselves to other places that were not the same and um, don't live in the same world you know have millions of visitors versus our whatever it was at the time hundred thousand or something and I felt like there was a real stifling of their creativity because of the comparison between collections that were not living in the same world as us and us and if we couldn't emulate what they were doing then we shouldn't do anything and and that was a real block for a while that particularly with the group of keepers that we had at the time that we couldn't push things forward so I think that there needs to be a When we look at who we want to go and see and what we want to do, we need to be able to filter that in a what's the essence that we want to take rather than specifically like this is the only way to do it.
0: Very well put. I did tell you that these questions would erupt into conversation. And that's a great example. Now, the the next one then is what is the one trait, one attribute inside yourself which has allowed you to push on and get you to the position you're in? Yeah, that's a
1: puzzler, that one. Again, I think it's hard to draw out one. I think if I was drawing out one, it would be having people skills. I think that so easily overlooked. I think that your ability to get to communicate and get on with people.
0: Really, really cool. Now, the, the next one then is if you weren't in the role you're in today... What would you do? I struggle with this question, but um, yeah, what would you do?
1: There's a bit of me that thinks I might be an agricultural mechanic because I love the technical. I love being outside. I don't like being in one spot all the time. The other thing I really love doing is hosting people, like having a site where people come and be happy. Um, within the countryside is is really uh, important to me. So I think the other thing that may open up, it might even open up still in life, is um, having a venue, like a wedding venue or something like that, where, where we were hosting people's good times.
0: Yeah, no, very, very well put. And to, to reflect a question from earlier on, the next one I've got for you is, do you feel there's anything we still need to improve within this industry?
1: Oh, definitely. One of the things that I think is getting better, but still needs more focus is the way we train leaders i think that just because you were a good animal keeper doesn't make you a good people leader you know here we're on we're on that journey we have not got it all nailed up yet but it's a completely different skill set that by default you might be good at or you might not be but doesn't seem to reflect whether you get given that job so that's i think we need to be better at that i think i've heard you mention a few times the retention as well and I think that you know I look around now and I've been doing this 25 years as volunteer and paid and there isn't many you know you look around and you know, there are but they're not many that make it that far and you think well why I think that that should be something that we we look at how we um, address and because we do lose that experience and yeah you can train you can train a new person but they're not going to have the same journey as the person that's gone and you've got to start again. And, you know, then if a few people fall out the top of the industry as well, then who's training them? It's only only training them with people that with less experience. So we're getting less skilled as time goes on.
0: Yes. Yeah, some some great words there. And hopefully only as time goes on, we'll, we'll get better and better. Um, fingers, fingers crossed. Now, the next one, we're nearly there. We're on that second to last question, but this one delves a bit more into your your personal side, and that is within the industry, who is your idol? There are two people
1: that I that come to mind with that question, and I'm not sure necessarily they're idols, but I like being in the room with them because I feel like I learn from them, and I like their approach to their roles and their responsibilities, and, and that's Jonathan Cracknell and Doug Richardson. I think both say what they think, not afraid to call out things that aren't good enough. Spent time with both of them in, in different circumstances and roles, and and just being in the room where they've you know not really been talking to me, but just ask, asking questions in conferences and things. And I like the fact that they you can follow their logic. You know, if they're challenging you or challenging anything, you can see where they're coming from. Doug challenged me quite. You know, it wasn't directed just at me, but he was saying about uh, at Keeper Fest, he was talking about essentially not reinventing the wheel like if things have problems have been solved why are you retrying and learning when we could just be learning from history and and as partly that i think that's because the changeover of stuff in, in within you know we don't have many people that have a working memory that long or, you know, a career that's that long to, to feed that in. But and I I was quite challenged by that. I think because the enclosures don't look like what we would see as acceptable nowadays, we've kind of distanced ourselves from the practices that were, were happening back then. But actually there's a there's a load of that, that gold that is there in, in in all that history of zoos that okay, some of it, the way that it looked back then, we wouldn't now see as the way to do it, like the way the enclosures are made, maybe. But there's lots of like welfare and, and animal management skills and knowledge that was learned by trial and error and by normal learning, you know, that is there for us. The other the other people that I think I have a lot of time for, and I'm really glad they're getting recognition through these podcasts, is is the Whitmore family from Paradise. I think historically, a bit like us, they were kind of treated on like on the outside, but they are the most welcoming, friendly, helpful family I in within the industry that I've I've come across and with what they've managed to produce in their team culture as well I just think it's fabulous that they've got the staff are so loyal you don't you never meet anyone that's got anything bad to say about them and I'm really really pleased that they are getting the recognition that they deserve they really are gems of the industry I think and yeah so I think if I think about what you know people that we would be pleased to emulate some of what they've got it's 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 them and what they're doing yeah
0: no some some very nice words and I, I think those names are definitely coming up a fair few times throughout these episodes so uh yeah rightfully so now we're on that last question of the podcast episode and that is can you sum up and it's a very tough question i'm fully aware this whole industry that we work in in only three words three words developing I think that we
1: have not got to where we will be. Collaborative, I think maybe my second one, um, as I touched on before, really, I think it's a very joined up network. And the last one, I think, is maybe driven. I think we're a group of people that believe in what we do. And that's very motivating for us, I think.
0: Very, very well put in three words, which I think are very fitting for the industry that we, we all live in now. We do come to the end of the podcast finally. We are there. Um, from myself and the listeners, Chris, thank you so, so much for coming on, sharing your stories, your words of wisdom, and your journey so far. It's been a real privilege. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, hopefully, we'll get you on again very, very soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Take care until then. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey learning about everything the zookeeper otherwise please subscribe thank you for listening and see you very very soon
1: bye